want to echo Brother Truett and say we appreciate everyone being here tonight. And if you're visiting with us, we count it a special honor that you're here with us. We hope that you enjoy our services. We have kind of an unorthodox gospel meeting going on right now, but we're in the middle of a teacher training. We've had some good edification. Uh, Wednesday night, we discussed the, the importance of what we're doing up here as we teach, the responsibility and the motive and the purpose that we have. Uh, last night, we discussed how to study the Bible and some different tools that we can use to do that. And tonight, we're going to talk about building the outline of a sermon. And later on, Trevor's going to talk about uh, Jesus as the master teacher. As we're trying to teach someone how to build a sermon, uh, specifically a sermon outline, there's sort of a fine line that I'm going to have to try to walk, I think, as, as we do that. A line between giving practical advice versus subjective opinion. Uh, as with many other things in this life, building a sermon outline varies from person to person. And work, what works best for me may not work well for you and vice versa. And so as we think about that, the goal of my study tonight then is not to give you a, a paint-by-the-numbers version of how to build a summer sermon outline, but rather to give you some tools and some guidelines and maybe a little bit of perspective uh, on what a good sermon outline and how it should be designed and built as we talk about that tonight. As we start, I want to think about and bring to your attention three keys to building an effective sermon. Number one, be prepared. Number two, be prepared. And number three, be prepared. This has been kind of a theme that we've seen throughout this, this series, but I want to stress to you tonight, if you don't take anything else away from what I say, if you forget everything else I say from this point on, remember this, we need to be prepared with a sermon outline. It doesn't matter how interesting or relevant your topic or subject is. It doesn't matter how well you think you know your topic and subject. If you don't prepare a sermon outline properly, you're setting yourself up for failure and embarrassment. We've all seen men get behind the podium like this one, maybe even this podium, who weren't ready to be here. And it's not ready in the sense that they didn't have the ability and the talent to do it. They just, just simply did not prepare. I've even heard men in the past get up here and say, well, I didn't have time to prepare like I should have. You didn't have the time or you didn't make the time. We talk about the importance of what we're doing here. We've read this first the couple, last couple of nights. We need to seek to excel at edifying the church. We have a responsibility as we're preparing our sermon, building a sermon outline that we need to give it our very best effort. We need to seek to excel at that in all other, just like in all other aspects of our Christianity and all other aspects of the things that we've talked about this week. If we're not giving it our best effort, then we need to be thinking about whether we need to be doing it at all. Seek to excel to the edifying of the church. That's what we're here for. That's the purpose of, of us getting behind this podium and presenting a sermon. You know, when I was a kid, I remember in English class, elementary school, maybe middle school, I don't remember exactly, the first time I ever had to do an outline, read a short little story or paragraph, and the teacher said, I want you to learn how to outline this, and I hated it. I was like, I don't want to outline, it's boring, I don't understand it, it doesn't accomplish anything, it's just busy work is all it is. But as I've grown older and matured, I realized the importance of outlining. And as someone who teaches behind the pulpit on a regular basis, I've, I've come to the conclusion that outlining is an invaluable process or part of building a sermon. 
and making your presentation. It, it's so helpful for helping you organize your thoughts, taking all the things that we've studied and talked about. Like last night, Craig and Levi talked about this mountain of information that we gather as we're studying the Bible and looking at whatever topic we're looking at. We need to now take that and organize it and structure it. And that's what an outline does for us. And I don't care if your outline looks anything like this. Um, these are just some example outlines that I found just doing a Google search. It really doesn't matter to me what your outline looks like as long as you do it. Um, but it's important that we do an outline. You know, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the elders of this congregation, as Carrie mentioned on Wednesday night, have asked us as teachers to give them an outline of our sermon in advance of us, of us doing that. So that's an important part of that. And also, if you're not outlining, you're not preparing, and we've already talked about that as well. So the outline of your structure, excuse me, the structure of your outline, it can vary from sermon to sermon, not just from person to person, but if you're doing a, a, a topical study or versus a, a character study or maybe even a chapter study, your outline may look different, and that's okay. We shouldn't be married to a particular format of outline. Don't feel obligated to make all of our outlines look the same. Maybe your outline is just a PowerPoint presentation, and that's okay too. Um, that doesn't work for me. I have to sit down at a word processor and you know, do a, a sort of a traditional-looking outline, and then I base my PowerPoint presentation off that. But whatever works for you, you know, that's, that's okay. As long as you have some sort of outline that you have, the structure may vary. Your outline is a means to an end. Okay, so let's not look at our outline as I need to fit my topic or subject that I'm that I'm going to try to present. I need to fit that to a structure of an outline. Okay, we need to build our outline to fit our goal. Okay, the outline serves the purpose of doing that. So we need to make sure that we're not so stuck on well, I've got I got to have four points and I got to have four sub points under those, and and I need to make my subject that I'm I'm talking about fit that. That's not at all the, the point of an outline. The outline should serve the purpose of communicating our message, uh, not try to fit it into the structure of our outline. And finally, just be you. You know, I'm not a big fan of this, this saying, uh, I got to be me. I don't like that saying because a lot of times it's just an excuse to commit sin. But in this case, when we're talking about building a sermon outline, be you. You know, like I said, what works for me may not work for you. And you can, you know, you can come to me and say, hey, can I have a look at the way you outline a sermon? I'm happy to show you that. And I would recommend that you do that. Go to all the men of the congregation. How do you outline a sermon? Maybe you can get some ideas for that, especially those of you that are just starting out. It may be helpful to do that. Those of you that have been doing this a while, if you're like me, you, you kind of set in your ways. Several years ago, uh, Brother Chris Joe recommended a book to me called Communicating for a Change. And I read that book, and there's some very unorthodox outlining methods in that um, that are effective for some people. I tried it uh, for about six months, and it just, you know, I, I was okay with it. I was scared the first time I did it, but it, it just never really did fit the way that I, that I teach. And that's okay. I moved back to my old outlining style. So just find what works for you. To coin a phrase, just do it. Whatever you do, prepare, prepare, prepare. Make sure you're prepared for your sermon with an outline. So let's talk about the introduction of your outline. There's another fine line I have to walk tonight, and that fine line is tomorrow night. (laughs) 
because Justin and Danny are going to talk about presentation, and, and it's going to be really hard for me not to stray into that territory a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, your outline really informs a lot of how your presentation is going to come across, and there's just no way of getting around that. So there's a saying that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Well, the introduction of your outline is the first impression of your sermon. And so for, because of that reason, we need to do our best to make it effective. We have a weak introduction. Uh, you got to work that much harder to make it up in the body of your outline. I've been told by someone very special in my life that I have a problem with introductions. It's hard for me, if for whatever reason. Um, other people say I don't have a problem, but I'm going to trust the person that tells me that I do have the problem. At any rate, we need to work hard, and we need to make our outlines... Uh, just as much of a part of our out, excuse me, we need to make our introduction just as much a part of our outline as the body that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. Our outline doesn't have to be complicated, but it has to accomplish a couple of things. Number one, it has to attract the attention of the audience. Okay, if we don't attract their attention, we're trying to edify an audience. We can't do that if we don't attract their attention and get them interested in what we're talking about. It doesn't mean we have to be gimmicky. It doesn't mean we have to be controversial. It doesn't mean, you know, we have to be shocking. It just simply means we have to make it interesting and relevant to what we're talking about. A good way to do that is to make it personal. And I know Justin and Danny are going to talk about that tomorrow night, so I won't go any more into that. Communicate purpose. Your introduction needs to communicate to the audience, where are we going? What are we doing here? What am I trying to teach? There was some discussion as we were having the meetings leading up to this series, and somebody mentioned, you know, it can be useful to maybe pose a rhetorical question to an audience uh, to get them sort of thinking about, you know, where you want them to go and get them in the direction of what what you want them to think about. And I think there's some merit to that. You know, we all like a twist ending to like a movie or a book, but that's not the way our sermon should be. So I think it's fine if you want to kind of create that curiosity in someone's mind of, Maybe just ask a general rhetorical question, but we don't need to leave the lights off very long. By the time our introduction is over, our audience needs to know where we're going uh, and what we're trying to accomplish. So our introduction should clearly define the parameters of our study, make the destination clear. Here's an example introduction in Acts chapter 17. As Paul is in the city of Athens, he says, it says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Whereas I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown, unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Paul gives a great sermon to the people at Athens here. And this is a very simple yet powerful introduction to what he wants to talk about. He, get, he gets their attention. He addresses them personally, men of Athens. He talks about their religious nature. We all know that the Greeks were very religious in the sense that they had a pantheon of gods that they worshipped. And he said, I perceive that you're very religious. He didn't insult them. He didn't cut them down. He didn't say, you bunch of heathens, you're worshipping all these false gods. That's not what he said. He was almost complimentary in what he was saying. But he said, I saw this altar with the inscription to the unknown God. I want to talk to you about this God. Because you're worshipping him without knowing it. And you don't really know who he is. I want to talk to you about him. Simple and straightforward, getting, getting their attention, making it personal, and telling them what we want to talk about. So our introduction leads to the body of our outline. And so the body of our outline should be the meat of our message, if you will. Okay, You've told the audience where you're going in the introduction. You're, the body of your outline is going to get them there. 
So if your main idea is a destination, the body, think of the body of your outline as a roadmap that's going to take us to where we need to go. So the purpose of the body is to communicate the main thought of the sermon. And that's where the primary edification is going to come from as we go through a sermon. The body of our outline should engage the audience. That simply means keeping the attention that we've attracted with our introduction. Engage them. Get people interested in what we're talking about. Okay, we do that, not, again, not by being shocking or gimmicky, but by using points in our outline that are relevant and focused to the subject matter. So focus is sort of the next point. As you study and gather this big mound of information that you've gathered by going through the Bible and through reference materials and things like that, you'll probably come across some ideas that are really interesting to you. You'll come across some thoughts that, well, I've never really thought about that. That's a good point. And you maybe want to include that in your sermon. And that's okay if it's relevant to the main point you're trying to communicate. But if it's not, don't put it in there. Put it in your back pocket. Save it for another sermon or maybe even create a sermon based on that verse alone. But let's stay focused to the objective that we want to do. We talk about rabbit trails. One of the best ways to avoid rabbit trails is not to build it into the outline of your sermon. You know, if, you're, if it's not built into the sermon, you're less likely to go down a rabbit trail. Some people tend to do that anyway, and that's presentation and not, not, not the scope of this study tonight. Number three, use Scripture. Somebody in the audience is saying, thank you, Captain Obvious, <laughs> for telling us I need to use Scripture when I talk about the Bible. It may seem obvious, but if you watch some of these preachers on television, try to watch Joel Osteen for five minutes if you can handle it. And see if he mentions any scripture. What's the point of getting up here and trying to teach the Bible if we're not going to use scripture? It's our responsibility to teach God's word. If we're not using scripture to back up the points that we're making in our outline, then we're just giving our opinions. Okay? And so we're here to teach God's word, not use the pulpit for our own personal soapbox. We need to make sure the scripture that we use is applicable. Kerry mentioned this when he talked about the peer review thing Wednesday night, how when we send our sermons into the elders early to let them take a look at it, or maybe send it to the other men of the congregation to get some feedback. Somebody may look at that and say, hey, this is a great point you're making here, but the scripture you're using, you're taking that out of context, and it doesn't apply to the point you're trying to make. And so if that's the case, we need to find another scripture to help support our points. If we can't find any scripture to support our points, maybe we shouldn't be making the point in the first place. So let's make sure the scripture that we use is applicable to the point we're trying to make. And finally, let's not use excessive scripture. Is there such a thing as too much scripture? Not if we're talking about just reading and studying the Bible ourselves. But if we're talking about a sermon, then yes, there's such a thing as too much scripture. Remember the pile of information that we've gathered. We may be tempted to take as much of that as we can and stuff it into our sermon. But we can't expect our audience to drink out of a fire hose. They're just not going to retain the information that we give them if we're giving that many scriptures. I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, especially, but even several years ago when we were still using these things called whiteboards. And when I was a kid, they were called chalkboards. Some of you kids may not even know what a chalkboard is. But you'd come in and, the, and we as, as speakers would write all of our scriptures up on the board. And I remember walking in a couple of times with a blackboard almost the size of this screen. And there was eight point font of, of a whole screen full of scriptures listed up there. And I remember thinking, I should have packed a lunch. 
we're going to be here forever. He's going to either do nothing but read the whole time or he's going to talk for two hours. We can't do that. We're not here to read the word of God to our audience. We're here to teach the word of God to our audience. And if we're using too much scripture, you know, we're going to be repetitive. Nothing disengages an audience more than being repetitive. So we need to keep that in mind as well. I want to go to Acts chapter 2. I looked in the back of my Bible and I couldn't find Peter's sermon outline back there. All I have to work off of is what he said and what he taught. But I think the principles of outlining a sermon are there. Uh, Peter had the advantage of the Holy Spirit guiding him and, and telling him what to say. We don't have that, so that's why we do sermon outlines. But I think the principles are sound. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, we find that it's the day of Pentecost after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. The apostles are gathered in the city of Jerusalem in the upper room. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. They begin to speak in tongues. They begin to teach the word of God. The people in the city are thinking these guys are crazy. They're saying they're drunk. Peter stands up and says, no, these men are not drunk. They, it's, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. He quotes the prophet Joel tells them this is fulfillment of prophecy. And then he begins the first gospel sermon. And so in verse 22, we see Peter begin his sermon. And this is sort of, I guess, another introduction, if you will, but it sets the stage for what he goes on to talk about next. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So Peter grabs the attention of everyone there with this short introduction. Number one, he's addressing them directly, just like Paul did. Men of Israel, hear these words. And then he talks about Jesus. He says he was a man attested by God. In other words, he was proven by God by the miracles and signs that were done by him and by other people. He said, you know this, you saw it. He said, you've taken this man and you've crucified him and you've put him to death. You know, it doesn't get much more personal than accusing someone of murder. He made it personal, didn't he? And then he says, I want to tell you, I want to talk about this man. And I want to talk about the fact that you put him to death, but he's been raised again. What are we talking about here? The gospel. Peter says, I want to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He addresses his audience. He makes it personal. He grabs their attention. He says, I want to talk to you about the gospel. Verse 25, he starts. He says, for David says concerning him. Oh, we're quoting scripture now, by the way. This is what Peter does. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. He quotes Psalm 16, 8, 11. You turn your Bible and read that. It's going to be almost word for word what Peter says there. So Peter goes to Scripture, to the Old Testament. Now, this whole sermon is Scripture for us. But they didn't have that back then. This was Peter going to the Old Testament. He said, I want to talk to you about Jesus and what he's done. I want to talk to you about his resurrection. Here's a Scripture that shows, that prophesies Jesus and his resurrection. So in the next verse, he goes on to explain this passage of Scripture. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us unto this day. So he lets them know, David wasn't talking about himself. Okay, David is dead. 
We can go to his tomb today, Peter said, and we can look at his tomb. He's still there. And so therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So in other words, what he's saying here is David was a prophet. He was talking about Jesus in this prophecy. God had made an oath to David. I'm going to raise up the Messiah through your lineage. That's what the promise that God made to David. And so he's explaining that to them here. Uh, He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the cross, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay. So he was telling him, hey, when he was talking about his soul not being left in Hades, he was talking about Jesus rising from the dead. That's what he was talking about. And so God has raised him up. We're all witnesses. He's exalted at the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that's been poured out on us. And that's what you're witnessing today. Peter doesn't spend a whole lot of time. He does quote another passage here in Psalm 110 and verse 1. There are hundreds of, of prophecies and scriptures that Peter could have gone to to show Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't do that. All he needed was one or maybe two scriptures to do it. He made the point he wanted to make. He supported it with the scripture. He explained it and he moved on. That's it. Nothing complicated, nothing gimmicky or nothing out of the ordinary. Just a simple, powerful message. And that leads us to the conclusion of our outline. The conclusion is the destination. Okay? So if the introduction promises a destination, the body is the roadmap that gets us there. Then the conclusion is basically the proof of that destination, uh, if you will, uh, maybe a tour guide that points out the sights and the, and the, the scenery, if you will, if we're going to use the same analogy. You know, when you think about the conclusion, we don't just want to end a sermon. And I know they're going to talk about this tomorrow night, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But not just ending a sermon needs to be built into our outline. It can be so tempting when you've spent all this time studying and building this mountain of evidence and this mountain of knowledge, and then all this time and effort organizing that and trimming the fat and cutting things out and and making your points and focusing and organizing. When you get to the end of that, it can be very exhausting. And it can be very tempting just to say, "I'll I'll just wing it. I'll wing the conclusion. We'll just see what happens. I'll I'll think of something to say while I'm up there. And I can speak from experience because I've done that before, and it never works out well. You always end up with a canned invitation that we've heard 100,000 times. I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but I don't like doing it myself, I can tell you that. And that's just my opinion. Don't just end your outline Make your conclusion a very thoughtful part of your outline. Think about what you want to say. Remember, it's the destination. You promised the audience a destination. Show them you got there. I like to end my my sermons or my outlines reiterating the points that I've already made. Maybe in a bullet form. The main point saying, we talked about this, we talked about this, we talked about this. That gets us to the destination. Okay. Sometimes I like to use another verse or two of Scripture that maybe encompasses everything that I've talked about, maybe to sort of drive the point home. And think about our call to action. Maybe that call to action is like, hey, we've talked about being a prayerful people. Let's remember to pray every day. Or let's think about some tools that we can use to, act, to make ourselves a more prayerful people. Things like that. 
And if you don't have any kind of call to action like that, there's always the invitation of Christ. Brother Trevor was saying the other night, you can tie the gospel to any, any sermon. Any sermon you preach, you can tie the gospel to it. And there's no need to say, you know, we haven't talked about the first principles because Jesus is in every page of the Bible. And he's in every sermon that's ever been preached. If we just look and take the time and the effort to find a way to tie that to the invitation of Jesus Christ. So I want to cover Peter's conclusion now. He says in Acts chapter 2 here, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So all the mountain of evidence that he's built up, quoting the, the, the prophecy of David, showing that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He said, God has made Jesus, the man you crucified, again, he makes it personal, both Lord and Christ. And they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said, what are we going to do? Peter gives them their call to action. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So a very simple but yet powerful conclusion to his sermon. So hopefully these sort of nuts and bolts ideas give you give you some help on your journey um, as a teacher. I've tried to keep my opinions to, to a minimum tonight, but um, I don't know if I've been wholly successful in that or not. But hopefully I've given you just some guidelines and some thoughts to think about. And hopefully using, I recommend you really dive into Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 and even Paul's sermon uh, to, the, to the people at Athens. There's some really great ideas there about how to communicate a thought um, and really communicate your message that you're trying to get across to your audience primary point, again, I want to make tonight, prepare, prepare, prepare your sermon outline. Don't just get up here and wing it. Uh, this time I'll, we'll have a song and then I'll turn the services over to Trevor. I believe it'd be a mistake to have a teacher training series and not talk about the greatest teacher of all time, the, the master teacher, most influential Life ever lived, most influential words ever spoken, the greatest teacher of all time, it's not even close. The fruit bears record over the past 2,000 years. And so I think you'll find as we look at Jesus, the master teacher for a little while now, the things that have been covered so far and tomorrow, kind of all tied together and reflected in the ultimate sense and the ultimate fulfillment and perfection like any good characteristic in the model and example of Jesus Christ. And so I think if we want to be more effective in our teaching and excel in that, I think it would behoove us to spend time studying and seeking to emulate the teaching of Jesus. John seven forty six. no one ever spoke like this man. When Jesus set out to convert the world, I believe he recognized that he couldn't do all that by himself. And so he commissioned 12, and later he commissioned 70, and then he gave the Great Commission. And as we think about that, daunting task to make disciples of every creature and every nation and all the world. And I submit to you, the only way that's possible is for every single Christian, every single one of us, every member of the body to do their part to accomplish that task in some capacity. Now, that's not always public teaching. Noah talked about that the other night. There's two extremes, the one-man preacher system, the one-man show, and the every-man preacher system. And both of those can produce bad fruits. That's not everybody's talent or gift. But I believe we ought to be teaching in some capacity. Hebrew said, the Hebrew writer said, by this time you ought to be teachers. That's the will of God, that we progress as a student of the Word, that not only do we understand it so we can live it our own in our own lives, but so that we can then bless 
and benefit others by teaching it to them. And I believe we ought to be teaching in some capacity. You know, sometimes we emphasize public teaching at the expense of private teaching. Certainly, I believe in public teaching. I'm involved in that. I believe preaching is very important. It's an opportunity to teach a lot of people in one setting. Something I'm involved in here and other places. Something I'm passionate about. But I want to tell you, it's not any more critical than the teaching I'm doing privately. As Paul said, from house to house, my children, family, neighbors, co-workers, seeing people obey the gospel and get baptized and change their life a lot of times through private studies. And so don't discount how important that is, whatever role you have, male, female, the teaching people that you know. You know, Jesus taught publicly, certainly. He taught the multitudes. He taught crowds. But he also taught the individual. A lot of his teaching was one-on-one. He engaged people in discussion. He was a conversationalist. So let's not minimize uh, personal evangelism. Church growth research reflects that 90% of people are brought to a church by someone they know. Shouldn't surprise us. 34 of 40 times people were brought to Jesus. They were brought to Jesus by somebody they knew, thus seeming to confirm that statistic. Those are our personal mission fields, and we need to be doing our job to teach others. I have an illustration here on the importance of what I believe, uh, adopting a multiplication strategy. Think about the strategies we adopt. Some people have a division strategy. I think we understand what that is. Some have a subtraction strategy. When we don't carry out the second part of the commission, teach to observe, you know what happens? been guilty of this a lot in my work. And it's frustrating. You lose people because they're not all in. You haven't taken the time. We teach and baptize and move on to the next person. And some people have a subtraction strategy because we don't disciple people. Some have an addition strategy better than the other two. But I submit to you an addition strategy alone will not take the gospel to 8 billion people. To every creature, every nation, all the world. I submit to you the only way statistically that is possible is through implementing a multiplication strategy. Let me show you what I mean by that. Be fruitful and multiply. Throughout the book of Acts, you find the term multiply. They multiplied, they multiplied, they multiplied. Because those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word of God. Acts 8 verse 4. It wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the elders and evangelists. It was everybody involved in teaching in some capacity. So let's suppose we have an addition strategy in a congregation, maybe just a handful, 10% doing 90% of the work as most organizations have. Maybe just one person that gets it, that gets that evangelism is important, that we need to share the gospel with those we claim to love and care about. And so they're leading 30 people a year to Christ. That's an impressive number. We think, wow, we'd love to grow 30, 60, 90, 120, 150. But I tell you, as impressive as that is, it will not get the gospel to 8 billion people. Statistically impossible, even over time. Let's suppose now we adopt a multiplication strategy. One person converts another, spends the year discipling them so that they buy in, they're all in, so they aren't subtracted. Training them to replicate that process in their personal mission field. It starts off a lot slower, 2, 4, 8, 16, doubling each year, but eventually it explodes past the addition strategy due to the power of compounding. And I submit to you, that is the only way to get the gospel to every creature, every nation, and all the world. It's for all of us to be involved in teaching in some capacity. So I hope we recognize how important this is. So as we study what made Jesus so effective in his teaching, I think the perfect place to start is by noticing that he was credible in his teaching. And we need to be credible in our teaching with our children, that they know that we have a genuine concern, that 
that we genuinely care, that we have their best interest at heart, that we know what we're talking about. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, our brethren need to have credibility, honesty, purity, humility, those things and characteristics that give us credibility. Jesus was moved with compassion. That's what motivated him. Not just to feel sorry for people, but to take initiative to help them, to teach them. Mark 10, we see that it's his interaction with the rich young ruler. In verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's part of what gives us credibility. It's not just what we know, but that we care. There's a saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Jesus knew everything. That gave him credibility, gave him an audience. I want to tell you what also gave him credibility is that he loved people. He genuinely cared about people, and that came across. They felt that. They observed that, and it gave him credibility. We need to be credible in our teaching. We need to practice what we preach. We need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. That's called hypocrisy, and Jesus had a lot to say about that, and that takes away our credibility. Now, think about a congregation I used to be a member of several years ago. We had a guy on the schedule that Almost didn't show up except for the Sunday nights he was on the schedule to teach. I'll tell you, eventually he went off the schedule because he lost credibility. If you're not going to be here fairly consistently or be involved in what's going on, might not need to be up here. There's no credibility. What about when we leave this place? We're only here for a couple hours a week. What are we doing the rest of the time out in the community? We go out and we're engaging in fornication, drunkenness, cursing, genuinely not... Treating, treat, treating people right, wearing the name but not living the life, we're not going to have credibility in our teaching. And so it's important not only that we know what we're talking about for credibility, but that we do and live what we're talking about so that we'll have credibility in our teaching. He had faith in the Scripture, and that was evident in his teaching. It is written, it is written, it is written. He endorsed the entirety of the Word of God that existed at that time, the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. He endorsed all of it. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the historical accuracy of the creation of Jonah, of the flood that many people question, endorsed all of it. Endorsed the very words that were selected by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 22, when questioned about, is there a resurrection? Is there life after death? He made an argument on one word, the tense of one word. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, I am, because they still exist. There's life after death. There's a resurrection. And so how we view Scripture, is it relative? Can we change it? Is it subjective or is it final, absolute authority of God as Jesus viewed it? That's going to obviously affect how we study and how we teach the Word of God. Our teaching will reflect what and who our faith is in. What are we relying upon when we teach people? If we believe the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God as God breathed, then that should be evident in our teaching. That's going to result in a correct and thorough use of Scriptures in our teaching. He used Scriptures to answer religious questions, as we notice in Matthew 22. A lot of questions people have. We need to answer them book, chapter, verse, because that's all that matters. Book, chapter, verse. That's how we answer those questions. It's also interesting, he frequently taught with questions. He responded to questions with questions. We talk about the Socratic method. Why would he do that? Well, because I believe he wanted people's brains to be working. He wanted them to be thinking. For themselves, reflecting, meditating. And so we also need to consider how can we use questions, rhetorical in the pulpit, <laughs> where it's going to be a circus, but privately also, how can we use questions effectively to teach? 
I would encourage you to study. There's roughly 100 questions Jesus asked that are recorded in the Gospels. I would encourage you to study the type of questions he asked people and incorporate those in your teaching. Use Scripture to teach false doctrine. There's a lot of that. Again, book, chapter, verse. It is written, it is written, it is written. That was the theme. We notice here as Satan was tempting him, he was quoting Scriptures. And that's a lesson for us. Without a proper hermeneutics, we can quote Scripture all day and not have a clue what it means. We can abuse it. We can misapply it. And so we need to use scriptures to deal with false doctrine. We need to do that effectively. And so I believe what's interesting about this example here is Satan's quoting from Psalm 91, I believe. Obviously, if you can, it's effective to address a passage somebody's misapplying and show them in that passage how, what, they're, what they're missing. But Jesus here goes to Deuteronomy. And I think what we see here is that he endorsed, and the Bible endorses what's known as the inductive method. That is, you've got to Put the whole together. The part has to fit with the whole. It can't contradict. It's got to complement. And he showed and exposed that Satan's application of Psalm 91 was too broad, was not appropriate based on Deuteronomy 6 and other places. And so I believe the inductive method is the correct method in our study and in our teaching where you gather all the facts. We do this in every field of investigation, except unfortunately often in theology. Court system, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Science class, remember the inductive method, you gather all the data, it's got to all fit together, it's got to all jive, you begin to form hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you meditate on the scriptures, and then after you do all that, you are now equipped to draw the proper conclusions and arrive at truth. I believe the Bible teaches us to be rational, to be reasonable. Our faith is based on reason. Paul reasoned with them. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see we're taught to draw only conclusions that are warranted by the evidence. That's the law of rationality. Acts chapter 2. Evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Not a blind leap in the dark. A divine walk in the light. And so I believe we also need to use the inductive method and we need to use logic. Just like Jesus did. When he interacted with people, when he taught people, when he answered these questions, he used logic brilliantly. And we need to do the same. He used scriptures to make his points. Luke 24, 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He used points, book, chapter, verse. You know, Jason mentioned televangelists. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit in a little mini-series lately, and he talked about how there's this misunderstanding on how the Spirit works in conversion. Many think that he's going to work outside of the Word due to Calvinism. And so preachers will tell all these stories and entertain people for 30 minutes without using any scripture and then expect the Spirit to convert them. What they should have done was use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and preach the Word. And then the Spirit could have converted people. I want to tell you, if our teaching isn't thoroughly based on it is written, thus saith the Lord, we are doing it wrong. He explains Scripture. Luke 24, 27, we notice the word expounded. That means to thoroughly explain. Again, not just reading. We've got to explain what it means. Cause them to understand the reading. He identified and analyzed his audience, Mark four thirty three, And with many such parables spake he the word unto them as they were able to hear it. Now, he didn't compromise the truth, never deviated from the truth, but he adapted his message to fit his audience so that they would understand and it would have the greatest effect. So when he talked about the kingdom to fishermen, he said it's like a net let down into the sea. Businessman, it's a pearl great price. Farmer, it's seed sown in the field. Housewife, it's leaven hidden three measures of meal. The Great Commission, our audience, teach and baptize, teach people how to become a Christian, and then teach people how to follow Jesus. 
A lot that goes with that. Teach them to observe all things. That's our audience at home, at work, at church. By identifying and analyzing our audience, we can be relevant and focused in our teachings. Now, just like they had the Spirit, the apostles had the Spirit, as Jason mentioned, Jesus could see hearts. <laughs> that was an advantage. We can't do that, but we can see the fruit of the heart. He said the behavior comes from the belief. It comes from the heart. So we need to spend time getting to know our children, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our brethren, so that we know what they need to hear, so that we can see the fruit. Consider also the themes of his teaching. As I looked in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Gospels, some of the themes that he talked about that we need to incorporate in our points and our teaching and even the topics we select, talk a lot about the kingdom. We talk a lot about the church. Salvation, obviously, very important. Love, greatest commands, including loving your enemy, forgiveness, faith in action. Talked about stewardship, talked about moral living, what's right, what's wrong, values and priorities and our perspective, consequences. He talked about death and being prepared for that. He talked about hell. He was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. People don't like that today. I want to tell you, it's not loving and tolerant to watch people driving off the proverbial cliff and doing absolutely nothing about it. We withhold the truth from somebody. They might genuinely be ignorant or deceived. You know what? They're not going to change or repent unless they know they need to change and repent. (laughs) And if we don't withhold the truth from people, they might never find it. If they don't find it, they certainly won't obey it. Jesus never compromised the truth, and we do not need to do that either. His teaching inspired action and change. Not just hearers, we want doers. Inspired action and change. He challenged people, said, you know what? You've got to believe. You've got to repent. You've got to change. You've got to be born again. Woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. We shouldn't just be teaching lofty ideas and concepts and theories, but also practice practical principles that can be applied, calls to actions, challenges. It should inspire and motivate obedience. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but him that doeth the will of my Father in heaven. It inspired obedience. It inspired transformation and change. And if you don't take or remember much about this presentation tonight, I hope you remember this. What made Jesus so effective in his teaching? It's something I've thought a lot about the last few years in my own life, my own heart, my own behavior. But having children, I've thought about that even more. We spend a lot of time trying to manipulate our children's behavior. Wanting them to act right in public and running them to act right at church and different things like that. And we focus a lot about the behavior. Sometimes we miss the heart of the behavior, the source of the behavior. And that's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. The heart, the heart, the heart, the why. We talk about the what and the how, which we need to. What about the why? What about the spirit behind what we're doing that gives, that's compelling, that gets us to buy in? Intrinsically motivated. You know, we can talk about modesty, which is a big problem, but what's the problem? We need to talk about the why. We can talk about the rules and all that, and just like the Pharisees, we can bend the rules and get around them because we're not bought in. But if we teach people why to be modest, the effect it has on other people, we can buy in because we understand the why behind the what and the how. Our children, when they fight about toys, sometimes we'll say, who had it first? That's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is you're not esteeming others better than yourself. You need to turn the other cheek. We need to think about the why and teaching to the why so people believe and buy into what we believe, which is going to take care of, of the what and the how of what we do. I've taught a lot on the assembly and coming to church. It's you know, and evangelizing, you know, maybe that's my soapbox or pet peeves, but what's the magic button to get people to buy into that? But I've realized a lot of times I'm talking about symptoms. That's a fever, which is a reflection of a disease, but the fever is not the problem. 
What's the problem? What's the disease? A lack of commitment to God, a lack of love for God, for the church, and for other people. And we need to make sure our teaching with our children, with the church, other people, is addressing the heart. We need to teach to the heart. He was efficient and effective. That struggle was real. (laughs) But he was brilliant at it. Short bumper sticker statements, packed full of truth, parables, packed full of truth. Lots of, But he did that in an efficient and effective and a focused way. You want to find your life, you got to lose it. The only thing you take with you is what you give away in service to God and other people. You won't find a, have a U-Haul chasing your hearse on the way to the cemetery. Effective bumper sticker statements that stick out, that are memorable, to help people remember and retain what was talked about. And he often left people craving for more. Prodigal son, it's like it's over. And then, then what happened? He understood he couldn't be completely exhaustive. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. He addressed a lot of moral issues and topics, but he didn't address every moral issue. He gave some examples, but he taught principles and concepts. We need to be practical in our teaching and give examples and apply it. But great teachers teach principles and concepts that students can grasp and understand and apply to other scenarios. He used illustrations effectively, and we won't spend a lot of time on that. That'll be covered Tomorrow, I just want to point out roughly 45 parables, stories people relate to, understand, get the point. It's memorable. Now, again, we don't need sermons long on stories and short on verses. We need stories that are interwoven with, with Scripture and backed by Scripture, but they can be very effective if we use them appropriately. Visual aids, fig trees, Caesar's coin, etc. Research shows most people are visual learners, retain like 90% visually so that can be very effective to have visual aids in our teaching again being tasteful about that don't need an abundance of props but that can be effective we who can forget chase palmer drinking gatorade and chocolate milk right we remember that it sticks out i've used blueprints before talk about restoring new testament christianity if our house was gone for two thousand years they could rebuild it with the blueprints we have the blueprints new testament christianity Talking about creation and does God exist? He could put a model of the solar system out, not say anything about it. And at the end of the sermon, the natural question is, who made that? And just say, nobody. Came from nowhere. Just, pop, just popped out. We can use props to make those kind of points. I've used an empty chair before to talk about when we're not here. And that Lord, the Lord is our honored guest when we're here. And is present when we're here. Same sermon. It's talking about coming to church, the assembly. And I did some math on the board. I usually don't write because I lose credibility with my handwriting. That's why I'm a PowerPoint guy. I have no credibility with my handwriting. But I've done some math to illustrate how few hours we are here. I mean, it's, it's really hardly anything compared to all the other things we're doing. And so I did some fractions and converted those to percentages. And I sat down and realized my math was off. And I was in engineering school at the time. That was really, really embarrassing. And so moral of the story, vet your visual aids. They can fall flat in a hurry. Vet them with the elders, practice them because they can fall flat in a hurry. But know that we can use those effectively. Studying with a guy uh, at work this week, we've been studying for a while. We've been talking about salvation last week, went through the conversion examples in Acts, that chart with the checklist of the steps of salvation, the great commission, believe, repent, be baptized. Conversion examples, they believe, they repented, they were baptized. We went through that and it really resonated. He loved that chart. And then we went through this diagram we use about obeying the gospel. We have to obey the gospel to be saved. What's the gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. How do we obey it? Romans 6, crucify the old man, bury him in baptism, washed in the blood, resurrected in the newness of life. And we can see clearly how we obey the gospel. And then I lay alongside that 
what the gospel is not. Unfortunately, the common plan of salvation today, you're dead in sin, you believe and accept Jesus into your heart, say the sinner's prayer, now you're saved, you're alive. They'll say you don't have to get baptized as, as part of the plan of salvation, but you need to do it later as a public display that you're saved. But what we see visually is that you are now burying somebody who's alive. You don't bury people who are alive, you bury people who are dead. And you can see how that does not match what Jesus did. That does not match the gospel. And that can be a very effective way for people to literally see the truth. So I would encourage you to consider how you can be effective in using visual aids. Luke 24, 32, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he walked with us, talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? That's our goal. The disciples reflected on how they were moved by his teaching. That's our goal. And by emulating his teaching, we can open the scriptures to others. We can explain them, help them understand them so that it touches their hearts and changes lives. And if we want to excel in that, if we want to excel in edification, if we want to excel in teaching, we need to strive to teach like the master teacher. We need to teach like Jesus did. Lesson is yours tonight as we offer an invitation. If you need to respond to the and submit to the teachings of the master. We talked on the previous slide. The teachings concerning how to become a Christian. Believe, repent, be baptized. If you need to respond to that tonight, we would encourage you to do that. Best decision you'll ever make. If as a Christian, you need to respond to the teachings. The heart needs to change. Need to bind to the why. Need to repent. Need to change. If you need to respond to the Savior's teachings, if we can pray for you and help you and assist in that as well, we're prepared to do that. Jesus offered an invitation for those who are weary. He said, come and I'll give you rest. And he said, come learn of me. And if you need to come learn of the master teacher tonight, he invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.